You're listening to the audio podcast of the weekly message preached during the online worship service of Central United Methodist Church. We are located in Arlington, Virginia. You're invited to join us for our live worship experience through Facebook or Zoom every Sunday at 10.30 a.m. Visit www.cumcballston.org for details. There you can also learn more about our congregation where we worship God, serve others, and embrace all. Our reading today is from John chapter 15, verse 12 through 17. And I will be reading from the New International Version. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I've called you friends for everything that I learned from my father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. And so that whenever you ask in my name, the Father will give you. This is my command, love each other. This is the word of God from the people of God. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Kira, for that beautiful reading. We're commanded to love. It's pretty straightforward. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Straightforward and hard to love as Jesus loved. And it's pretty clear that Jesus did not teach us to love only our friends. As the Gospel of Matthew has it, you have heard it that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be children of your Father in heaven. For he makes his son to rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the righteous and on the unrighteous. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm really challenged by these commands. I find it very hard to love my neighbors and my friends. There are times I find it hard to love my boys, Matthew, Mike, and Mackenzie, and Marcia, and it's hard. And especially so today when there's so much to be angry about and so many people to be angry with and so many people who work so hard to get me angry. So how can this work? It's pretty clear that love and loving the other, to do that We have to be reconciled with the other. We have to have a relationship with them. And what does that mean? And I've been thinking about that a lot lately. What does it mean to have a relationship with someone I see on the news who's saying things that I find hateful? What is it to have a relationship with someone that I read about who has done something that I think is remarkably stupid? What is it when I see and feel something that makes me angry? And what happens when I realize that maybe, maybe I'm making somebody else angry? Reconciliation, simply defined, is 
the restoration of friendly relations. But Scripture tells us that as Christians, reconciliation is much more in what it does and where it comes from. Paul makes this very clear in his letter to the Romans. He says, For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his Son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. The enemies Paul was referring to were the Gentiles and the Jews. Gentiles and Jews who occupied two totally different worlds in first century Palestine, in the first century world. Two totally different worlds that were often at war with one another. Real war. There were Jews who were um, revolutionaries in the sense of committing murder on Gentiles. There were Gentiles who took pride in murdering Jews. And of course, their habits, their customs, their very lives were so different from each other. They were enemies, reconciled by the blood of Jesus Christ. So reconciliation takes work. Jesus teaches us that to be reconciled to God, we first have to be reconciled to our fellow human beings. And to do that, to become then fully human, to work at that, we need to be reconciled with ourselves. We were made for relationships. We were made to relate properly within ourselves to the other, to the world around us, to nature, and of course to our God. The problem is that you cannot have a relationship that's built on hate or anger or separation in your heart. And of all of these, how hard it is to be reconciled to oneself, reconciling myself to myself, to be reconciled even by, to those we love, how much harder it is to be reconciled to who we perceive to be the enemy. I suggest this takes three things. First, a willingness not to be so thrilled with our own anger. That is to be reconciled with ourselves. To recognize that we too can be angry people. Not only that, but we can be seen as the enemy by the other. Second, to practice in seeing the other as we ourselves are. Robert Burns, the Scottish poet of the 1700s, had a wonderful poem. It was Ode to a Louse. He he saw while sitting in church behind a very presentable woman. As he was sitting behind her, he noticed a louse crawling up out of her collar. And he wrote the poem, Ode to a Louse. And the key line in that poem, O God, the gifty gius, to see ourselves as others see us. And the third thing we need is the grace of God because it's too hard to do this sort of work without that grace. There's a prayer. I picked it up from James Martin, a Jesuit priest, in his book, Building a Bridge, a wonderful book, a book about uh, building bridges between the LGBTQ community and the very conservative elements of the Roman Catholic Church. In his book, Father Martin has this prayer. My prayer is to see that person as God sees him or her. This prayer, he goes on to say, 
in my experience, is always answered. Wow. A prayer that is always answered. Imagine that. Now, becoming reconciled with someone, forming that relationship does not mean capitulation. It does not mean giving up your ideals. It does not mean giving up the things that you hold dear or things you consider to be right. It may mean you moving in your world, but it doesn't mean giving up your core. And it does not mean giving up your anger. Scripture shows us anger, but it's an anger that results from human action, not anger that is human to human anger. Jesus was clearly angry. We see this in Scripture where they tell us he's angered by the hardness of the hearts of those who, who failed to see the need for his healing ministry. Paul recognized anger as a human condition. He tells the Ephesians, be angry, but do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Don't live with it. Don't, as so many of us do, and I've done this, don't enjoy it. It does mean reconciliation, being willing to stand with that other, to listen and to learn and to be willing to be open. I learned this some years ago. Um, yeah, 1972. I was on patrol. I was a police officer for a while with the um, uh, Westchester County Parkway Police. And I was on patrol at a small park when who do I see in the park there being interviewed but Pete Seeger. Many of you might remember Pete Seeger. He was a folk singer. Uh, he was uh, just at the forefront of um, uh, the labor movement. Uh, member of the Weavers, a group of singers who, who went throughout the land using music to try to teach people uh, how to be reconciled. He was there with the Sloop Clearwater on behalf of Clean Water in the Hudson River, which is right next to the park. I remember talking to him and he said, well, how are the people here? And I said, well, they tend to be a little bit mm, entrenched in their opinion. He laughed and he said, well, we'll just have to educate them. Education. But part of that was listening to me first. In Foreman's photograph, the one I showed before of the white man using an American flag to attack a black man, that remains implanted in the collective memory and history of the city of Boston, and not as a matter of pride. Um, it could be used and was used for reconciliation. In 2005, residents across Boston held a series of citywide dialogues on Boston's ethnic and racial diversity. See, Boston is really not one city. It's made up of, I think, 11 different neighborhoods that are totally different in racial makeup, in ethnicity. You have Roxbury, predominantly black, African-American, and West Roxbury that was very upper and, when I was there, very white suburban. You had Southie, South Boston, entrenched Irish-American. And you had East Boston, which was working-class Polish and Germans and a whole bunch of mixes in between. So in 2005, they had the dialogue between the communities. And to one meeting, someone brought that picture of the American flag being used as a weapon of, of racial hatred. The participants had been quiet, but the image of a black man being assaulted with the American flag broke the silence. 
And Michael James, a 39-year-old African-American resident of Roxbury, said, quote, everybody in the room, no matter their race, was appalled. It accelerated the con conversation. It was like, we, don't, we do have something in common. We don't want this to ever happen again, close quote. So in dealing with anger, don't encourage it. Our partisan news cycles and pundits, well, they're encouraging it. I don't care what side you're on or who you're listening to. It so often, at least in my experience, drains me of energy and energy of anger. And there's a danger here of adding anger to the anger and that only creates power to the dominions and powers that, that can rule this world in the enemy's charge. Dealing with anger, don't encourage it. Pray instead your way out of it. And one can step into reconciliation. Um, one of the most famous photos of the civil rights era was taken by Will Counts. He was working then for the Arkansas Democrat in Little Rock, Arkansas. And he took a photo during the September 1957 desegregation at Central High School in Little Rock. It's a famous photo. And here, you can see it here. In that photo, we can see a crowd of angry whites and prominent among them, that young girl sort of in the center of the picture, was Hazel Bryan, who through that photo became the face of white bigotry. At that time, she was only 15 years old. And in the picture, she's screaming racial epithets at a black schoolgirl dressed immaculately in white, her mournful and frightened eyes hidden behind sunglasses, clutching her books, and walking stoically away from Little Rock Central High School on September 4, 1957. The date when, in many ways, desegregation first hit the South where it hurt. The black girl was Elizabeth Eckford. She was a member of the Little Rock Nine. Moments earlier, she tried to enter Central High School only to be repeatedly rebuffed by soldiers from the Arkansas National Guard placed there by Governor Orville Faubus in defiance of a federal court order. A mob of bang at her heels, Elizabeth in the photo is making her way determinedly toward what she hoped would be the relative safety of the bus stop a block away. But that was not the end. And here's the wonderful story, and it's told by David Margalock in his book, Elizabeth and Hazel, Two Women of Little Rock. See, sometime in 1962 or 63, Hazel picked up the Little Rock directory and looked under Eckford. And then, without telling her husband or pastor or anyone else, she dialed the number. And between sobs, she told Elizabeth that she was that girl. And how sorry she was. Elizabeth was gracious. The conversation lasted a minute, if that. In the South in the 60s, how much more did it white girl and black girl have to say to one another? But Hazel didn't stop there. She broke what had been her ironclad ties to an intolerant church. She taught mothering skills to unmarried black women and took underprivileged black teenagers on field trips. She frequented the black history section of the local Barnes & Noble buying books by Cornell West and Shelby Steele and the companion volume to Eyes on the Prize. She'd argued with her mother on racial topics, defending relatives who'd intermarried. 
Finally, on the 40th anniversary of Central's desegregation in 1997, Will Counts, that photographer, returned to Little Rock and arranged for Elizabeth and Hazel to pose for him again. Hazel was thrilled and Elizabeth curious. Their first meeting was predictably awkward, but the new picture showing the two women smiling in front of Central revealed only the barest hint of that. It all but took over the next day's Arkansas Democrat Gazette and very nearly upstaged President Clinton. Soon a poster-sized version of the picture was available called Reconciliation. Then, quietly, Elizabeth and Hazel discovered something quite miraculous. They actually liked each other. For all their differences, Elizabeth was better read, Hazel's life far better balanced. They shared a good deal. Both were introspective, skeptical, a bit isolated. Neither fit in anywhere, including in their own families. They visited one another's homes, took trips together, spoke to schools and civic groups. In the process, Hazel helped pull Elizabeth out of her shell, then to blossom. Unemployed on mental health disability for years, Elizabeth soon returned to work as a probation officer for a local judge. And two years after they'd first met, they were together on Oprah. It's a wonderful, wonderful story, and you can read more of that in uh, Margot Luck's book, Elizabeth and Hazel. Reconciliation is possible, but it's so hard. And we don't know what went through Hazel's mind, what pushed her to pick up the phone and reach out in reconciliation. I would say God's grace. Boston is where our revolution began. And in many ways, in many ways that we've just gone through, in Boston and elsewhere in our country, the revolution is continuing. A revolution began in the late 1770s and led to a country founding in high ideals. And we celebrate those ideals on this 4th of July. But we also need to take a good look at ourselves and where we as a country have fallen short of those ideals. The ideals that all men are created equal. Our nation's revolution continues. We see it in our public places and how various people are facing this pandemic, and especially, for example, on our Native American reservations where our government has fallen so far short in protecting its trust. We see this revolution in our streets as people confront the fact that black lives matter. We see this in how some of our elected representatives are using thinly veiled racial stereotypes to argue against statehood for Washington, D.C. A group of people with taxation without representation, one of the banner headlines in our Declaration of Independence. And we see this in our continuing relegation of Puerto Rico to second-class status when it comes to providing aid and disaster relief. Our revolution is continuing as a country. But our revolution as Christians began much earlier, and it too continues. Our revolution began at the cross. It was at the cross where we see the love that Jesus spoke to us about, commanded us to. It was through the cross that Jesus gives us the grace, the power to be a people of reconciliation. It's hardwired in us from the cross. As Jesus reconciled us to God, so he gives us the easier part to be reconciled to one another. 
Before we move to our affirmation of faith in the cross, I want to share with you a prayer I recently came across that puts things into perspective about this easier part about being reconciled to one another. It's called the New Serenity Prayer, and I got it from uh, a Jesuit uh, website. God, grant me the serenity to accept the people I cannot change, which is pretty much everyone since I'm clearly not you, God, at least not the last time I checked. And while you're at it, God, please give me the courage to change what I need to change about myself, which is frankly a lot, since once again, I'm not you, which means I'm not perfect. It's better for me to focus on changing myself than to worry about changing other people, who, as you will no doubt remember me saying, I can't change anyway. Finally, give me the wisdom to just shut up whenever I think that I'm clearly smarter than everyone else in the room, that no one knows what they're talking about except me, or that I alone have all the answers. Basically, God, grant me the wisdom to remember that I'm not you. Amen.